Thank you. You can be seated. Good morning and welcome to our weekend service. Uh, so glad that you're here. Uh, looks like the snow may have slowed a few people down, uh, but we're excited that you made it and we're excited for the day that God's given us. Is it marvelous to you? How marvelous? How wonderful. Uh, the reason why we gather every weekend, even in the midst of uh, all that we've been through in this year, is because we have come to know the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is marvelous. It is wonderful. And we exist as a church, as a people, uh, to make his love known to the world around us. So I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, we continue today our series, House Rules. Uh, we're in part 10. We've reached a pivot point in the series. Um, we'll turn from uh, positive uh, encouragements to a series of negative warnings to the rest of the letter. So I'm glad you're here this morning, excited about that message. Uh, I want to mention a few things to you. If you're a guest with us, first of all, thank you for being here. You're a very special part uh, of our service. And you would find in the pew back in front of you what we call our welcome home card. It's just a guest card. I'd like to ask if you would to fill that out. You can leave it on the pew there or you can drop it at the table where the offering box is at the back. Uh, we'd just love to have a record of your visit. Uh, in addition to praying for you, our staff, uh, I will send you a letter uh, just telling you a little bit more about our church. Uh, additionally, you should find uh, somewhere around you a weekend program. And I just want to mention real quickly three things. Number one, uh, at the uh, end of our 11 o'clock service today, we have our uh, last of the year, our last covenant membership class. We have, uh, I think, half a dozen or so signed up. If you're interested in taking that step, you could always join us. Um, and uh, we, you, you don't have to sign up. Uh, we'll take your order at the very beginning of the class because it is a luncheon. Uh, and then we'll proceed with the class while, uh, while food is being retrieved. Uh, so you could join us for that. It'll be downstairs uh, in the church uh, immediately after the second service. So you'd have to come back, uh, but I'll make it worth your while. I'm buying you lunch. Uh, and then additionally, I want to mention uh, next Sunday we'll kind of uh, step out of uh, our House Rules series and we'll focus on uh, Christmas and uh, that will lead us up next, next Sunday the 20th. And that'll lead us up to our Christmas Eve service, uh, which will be the 24th. And it will be at 7 o'clock, about a 45-minute service, a very special time historically in the life of our church. So I hope you'll be able to make it for that as well. Uh, now I'm going to ask the Lord to bless our service. The vicars are going to come up in just a moment and present the Advent wreath. And uh, so join me in prayer for our service today. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Um, God, as we contemplate all that you have done uh, to make yourself known to us, uh, to reveal uh, yourself to us, and then beyond that, uh, Lord Jesus, to take upon yourself um, our sin, uh, our sorrows, our shame, uh, that we might know forgiveness and adoption into your family. Uh, God, we just confess today as a people uh, that those of us who have, have tasted and seen that you are good can proclaim how wonderful, uh, how marvelous. And it's our desire today as we gather uh, to worship you, to exalt your name, uh, that you might be uh, praised and glorified uh, by what we uh, say, think, and do. And then as we look to your word, God, to hear from you uh, a message of encouragement uh, for the time in which we live, that we might be uh, the people of God in the fullest sense that you intended. So we ask your blessing upon this service that your spirit would move among us, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. The first two candles in the celebration of Advent are the prophecy candle, which reminds us of the promise fulfilled, and the Bethlehem candle, which reminds us of the importance of making room in our lives for Christ. 
This morning we continue our celebration of the first coming of Christ with the third candle, the Advent, the shepherd's candle. The color pink symbolizes joy. This candle invites us to receive the good news of Jesus' birth as willingly as the shepherds did from the angels and to share it as freely as the shepherds did with all they know, knew. After the shepherds had received the good news and had, witnesses, had, had witnessed it for themselves, Luke writes. In 2.17b, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And in 2.20, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Let these verses remind us of the blessing that is ours to know Christ as our Savior, and may they also serve as an example of the importance of sharing with others the good news of Christ coming.
Thank you. You can be seated. If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you want to open it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the uh, pew back in front of you. And again, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our Jam Children's Ministry and our student ministry are on their way out. And we'll see you guys in a while. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Vince Lombardi, the famed head coach of the Green Bay Packers, uh, it is said one time was so disappointed and frustrated with the focus or lack thereof uh, and the performance of his team in a practice that he shut the practice down. He called all of his uh, paid professional athletes together around him and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. It's not that they didn't know that, it's just that they weren't practicing the fundamentals. And so Lombardi wanted to remind them that the only way we succeed is if we focus on the fundamentals. Uh, the Apostle Paul, Gala, we didn't practice this before. Look at that. The Apostle Paul, too, understood the importance of occasionally coming back to the basics and being reminded of what's most important, uh, and that is the very reason behind his writing uh, this first pastoral epistle uh, to his protege, Timothy, uh, to encourage him not only uh, to fight against things that were happening in the church, but then to call the church back uh, to what are the fundamentals or the basics of the Christian faith and life uh, within the church. You'll remember in the course of our series, we've talked about how this, uh, this church that, uh, that Timothy is pastoring is in the city of Ephesus. It's a, a very important city in the day. Uh, a lot of things converged uh, in Ephesus, and it was a place of, of not only wealth, but also uh, lots of uh, pagan worship, which included the goddess of Diana. Uh, the temple of Diana was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll talk a little bit more about its size and scope. And it's into this environment that uh, the Church of Jesus Christ is trying to uh, find a way to survive. Uh, on the outside of, uh, of the economics of the day, uh, and because of their message, unpopular, uh, particularly in the city of Ephesus. And because of that, influences within the church uh, had been uh, rising up to try to modify what the church was about so that it might go well for them in the culture that they found themselves in. So the church conditions uh, are uh, confused. Uh, there are those uh, who have a prominent voice who are now advocating a different way to God, a way that not only would include uh, the Jewish path, the keeping of the law, but also that which would be popular in Ephesus in particular, the idea of, of esoteric knowledge or uh, the logos. Uh, so the message of Scripture proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the logos was not a popular message in the city of Ephesus. So in the first part of Paul's book, of Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 13, Paul has been giving positive prescriptions on how God ordained the church to function. In our day, we struggle to see them as positive for some of the very same reasons, I think, that the church in that day was trying to figure out if they could become more culturally accepted. Uh, Paul is going to turn from these positive uh, instructions on the church to negative warnings for the rest of this letter. Sandwiched in between, that'll be begin in chapter 4, verse 1, through the end of the book. But sandwiched in between the positive instructions and the negative warnings is a pivot point. Our text today, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The church in every age needs to be reminded uh, of the things which are most important because just like the church in Ephesus, uh, we, are tend to, we tend to drift uh, away from truth. 
Uh, we're, we're not trafficking in something that's about, uh, about, about mastery in this life. None of us knows exactly how to accomplish the work God is doing. And so because of that, it, it becomes intimidating. And uh, we have a tendency to drift away from it and focus on mundane or minutia. And Paul says, if we are to be the church of the living God, if we're to accomplish the purpose for which God created the church, then we must remember the things that are most important. In, instead of seizing on positive prescriptions, we oftentimes drift toward the negative things, the negative preoccupations that Paul is going to warn about in the rest of this letter. But again, right here in the middle, he's going to remind us of essential truth, the things that we need to know, the reason why we aren't at liberty to change, chapters 1 through 3, what God has ordained the church to be, and the very thing that will protect us from the warnings that Paul is going to give us. Uh, this, these three verses are singularly profound, and they are pregnant with meaning. And so we'll spend our time together just to unpack these three. Now, again, they answer questions uh, that are being asked in our day about what the church should be. Do we have a right to uh, expand upon what God has said in his word when it comes to the church? And the answer is going to be no. Not if we would be the church that God designed the church to be. Uh, additionally, it's going to give us uh, the things, the tools that we need, uh, the focus that we need to avoid the very things he's going to warn us against. So let's begin uh, by reading chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but <clears throat> I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Uh, you can feel, uh, as Paul comes to this pivot point in his letter, that he anticipates that, that those had, who had been uh, false teaching within the church are, are, are going to object uh, to what Paul is saying. And that perhaps even Timothy himself needs to be encouraged as to why things need to be the way God ordained them to be in the church. And this is his answer in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, uh, which is not only to describe what the church is, but also to remind the church of our focal point, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer uh, likened the church to something akin to a Cinderella story. You know, the story of a young woman uh, living in uh, forsaken circumstances while her true identity is hidden. Uh, Cinderella is a story of unjust oppression uh, and triumphant reward. The church, which once held a prominent place in American society in particular, no longer garners that kind of respect. Um, just in recent days, that the work of the local church in a community would be considered essential is a mere afterthought for local officials and state officials. The church is not what uh, she was once considered to be in our own nation. The church, from a worldly perspective, is not much to look at. Not something that uh, educated people, smart people, need to even be bothered by. That's the way the outside world looks at the, uh, the enigma, the mystery of the church. 
Back in uh, 2008, Michael Lindsay, in his book, Faith in the Halls of Power, How Evangelicals Joined the America, American Elite, suggested that things were changing. Yet here we are 12 years later, and one can still say that while the church once held uh, a place of prominence in American culture, in the life of every city, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, those who are now uh, the opinion makers, political pundits, uh, journalists, civic leaders, uh, high, higher education faculty are now trying to grapple with what place does the church even have in American society? And unfortunately, this low regard for the local church is not only prevailing in the outside world, but there are many Christians who have a low view of the role and importance of the church. I'll hear things like, I can be a Christian without going to church, can I? And even if uh, you do go to church, Many Christians uh, have a, a, very, um, a very lackluster, a kind of come-and-go kind of commitment to the local church. Uh, and I, I, I hesitate to express it that way as going to church because we are the church. Uh, it's, it stems from a misunderstanding of who we've been called to be. There's a whole generation of Christ followers who are Lone Ranger Christians who think they can take or leave the local church. And it's this idea that Paul is speaking to because if we feel that way, if we allow ourselves to be lulled into thinking that way, then we fail to understand uh, the beauty and the purpose for which God created the church. So the question is, who needs the church? And that's the very question that the Apostle Paul seeks to answer in our passage. For Paul, this community of Christians that we call the church was not just a spiritual support group. It's more than a social uh, club to address loneliness and isolation. For the Apostle Paul, the church was central to God's purposes in the world. And so he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Here is a beautiful example of deliberate providence. It was the Apostle Paul's intention to deliver this message in person. That he was going to stand before uh, the church in Ephesus and deliver the very things that you and I have been studying. But God delayed his plans. And the reason why God delayed his plans is because the Apostle Paul's message to the church in Ephesus is also an important message for our church. So the Spirit of God moved Paul, knowing that his plans were delayed, to write these things down so that you and I in the year 2020 are not a church that's rudderless or lacking in direction. We hear the Word of God, and we should respond uh, accordingly. And the conduct that Paul is calling, on, uh, calling for from Christians in Ephesus is based on who they are. And so what is going to follow uh, is a description, a threefold description, about who the, what the church actually is, who we are as God's people. Uh, we'll, we see in these, in these verses that Scripture reveals the hidden glory of the church. It gives us proper perspective. So in a world in which we are, as we did last week, uh, about making plans and developing budgets and voicing our concerns or asking questions and then giving our consent, this passage reminds us that this church is not ours. It is not ours to do with as we please. And as much as we are the people of God, Paul wants us to be reminded, he wants us to have proper perspective. She, the church, belongs to him. And we do well to align ourselves with what he calls us to. First, Paul says, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church is the family of God. The word household is the Greek word oikos. It can mean building or it can mean inhabitants. 
It is clear from the context that the Apostle Paul is not talking about a building or some sacred space where uh, we need to, uh, uh, it needs to accompany the proper decorum. He's talking about the people. He's referring to the community uh, of the people of God. Uh, the people of God are God's house. They are God's family. The building that we meet in is not the church. We, the people, are the church. Uh, this is how uh, Scripture would have us think about what it means to be the church. So yes, we go to church. We'll talk about uh, assembling in just a moment. But we must, whether we are here together or we are out there in the community, we are a family. We're the family of God. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a second birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted, forgiven, and adopted into God's family. We know God as our Father, Christ Jesus as our older brother, and somehow, inextricably, though we are from places all over this country in particular, we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. There is nothing like the local church. Many people collaborate in many ways in our world. Athletes will collaborate on a team uh, to acknowledge the direction of the coach in pursuit of a common goal to win a championship. Uh, it's a pursuit that's based in self-interest. Many people, many of us have jobs and we will apply ourselves in collaboration with other people to produce a product or to accomplish a task and, and the payoff for us is that we receive a check. Uh, parachurch ministries exist to, to take the mission and, and to accomplish a, a particular task, and they collaborate uh, to do so. But all of these things are self-derived or self-determined ventures. The church of Jesus Christ is, is holy of God's making, and there's nothing like it in all of this world, where God will take sinners uh, who are far from him, and he will change their lives, and then he places them in the church with other sinners, and in the process of fellowship and growing in him, he makes us family. Strangers at one point, maybe even worse than that, maybe enemies, and yet because of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, we become the family of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that believers are members of God's household, and the responsibility to conduct ourselves accordingly is heaven's mandate on you. It is not an option for the Christian to decide whether or not they will be a part or to what degree they will comply with God's church. You're a part of the family of God. And Paul says you need to know how to conduct yourself appropriately. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? There are high stakes in the world around us as to whether or not we will be the people of God, the household of God. There are several implications uh, that flow from this understanding of the church as a family. 
We've covered several of them in recent weeks. Number one, the church's leadership is modeled after the family. We spent the last three weeks talking about leadership structure within the church. And in each of those cases, one of the qualifications for either elders or deacons is that they be able to manage their household well. If you can't practice it at home, then you can't lead it here. And so leadership in the church, uh, modeled after, uh, uh, after God the Father, is, is predicated on headship, and it's modeled after the family. Uh, second, the church's relationships are to resemble that of a family. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Isn't that true? The question is not, do we like someone? The question in the church is, will we love someone? See, every other organization in the world has the, has the luxury, if you will, uh, of choosing who they want to be about, who they want to welcome in. But, but the church is not a country club. The church is the family of God. And so the question we ask each other is, can we love one another? Not do we like one another. We're commanded to love one another. This is not a consumer choice. It's a biblical mandate. And it requires all of us collaborating together uh, to portray an accurate picture of who God is. Christians are to exhibit kinship, a, a blood relationship, a common participation uh, in the saving blood of Jesus Christ. This is what makes us unique. There's no other organism, no other organization in all the world that offers that. The church is also diverse like a family. The church is to reflect a, a generational uh, diversity as much as possible. A family of young and old. In a family, there are children, there are grandparents, there are uncles and aunts, numerous, but it's all family. All of whom contribute to the makeup of, of the extended family. Additionally, a church should increasingly reflect uh, the ethnic diversity that exists in any given community. Why? Because the gospel is for every race, tongue, and tribe. The church becomes a village uh, a moral community that helps to shape not only who we become, uh, but also our families. We're family. Fourth, uh, like a family, the church has a simple purpose. Unlike a business or even a, a, a parachurch organization, uh, to, to be successful is not something that can be measured within the family of God based on a spreadsheet. We're, we're successful. Our, the success of our, uh, of our uh, commitment to God is actually measured by Him. So you have to look long and hard at the local church uh, as compared to looking at the bottom line of a corporation. Uh, a family is a place of refuge and encouragement and discipline. It's a place of education and instruction and nurture. Uh, it's a web of loving relationships working themselves out uh, in pursuit of a holy God as we grow and mature in him, becoming more of who he intended us to be as our father and more like our brother, our older brother, Christ. It is out of this family that we are to live out our various uh, stations in life. A family may also have a mission, but again, uh, unlike a business, it can't, exclude, uh, it can't exclude those who can't contribute to the mission. Uh, a family forms a home, and like Robert Frost once said, home is a place where when you go, have to go there, they have to take you in. That's true, not true of parachurch ministries. As, as good a purpose as they may serve, that they are not the church. Um, this is why parachurch ministries often make the church uh, appear to be uh, ineffective or slow. But efficiency isn't the highest virtue for the local church. You're valued in the church, not based upon what you can contribute to the mission of the church. You're valued because the love of the Father has been lavished on you and His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And so the church often attracts those who are on the fringe of society, those whose lives are broken, those who, who are hurting. This is the, the very design of God uh, to attract to himself, to, to Jesus Christ, those who need him the most. And the church often specializes in drawing those people. And we welcome them as we must to express the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. Again, there is no other organization that makes its name on that principle. Most organizations want the best of the best. They want the cream of the crop. They're not looking for the down and out or the disenfranchised. They want to thrive and survive. The local church thrives and survives as it reaches those people. Suffice it to say, the Bible knows nothing of homeless Christians. People who say, I can't be a Christian without, I can be a Christian without being part of a church are completely missing the point of what it means to be God's people. You might as well say, I can be born without being part of a family. Perhaps, but who would want to? Family's awesome. I mean, I know there's some dysfunction in yours. There's some dysfunction in mine. But on the whole, God's design, this idea of, of a family nurturing and caring and loving one another is a beautiful picture, and this is what God has based the church upon. Being part of the local church is what it means to be Christian. The church is what God is about. It's not just the primary thing in the scope of eternity. It's the only lasting thing. And so there are a number of, of, of good ventures that, that are based in, in truth uh, with a mission to accomplish great things for the cause of Christ. But in as much as they lack uh, an understanding that the church is God's deal, they have drifted away from what is most important. The church is the bride of Christ. This is what uh, Jesus gave his life for. This is what God has bet the farm on, is the local church. You and I need the church. God has placed it in us. We are brothers and sisters accomplishing his purpose in the household of God. The church is a gathered people in whose presence God abides. Paul continues, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God. The word church is the word ecclesia. It means a gathered assembly. Friends, there is no such thing as the virtual church. It, does, it theologically does not exist. What makes us a church is the fact that we gather together. That's what, that's what ecclesia means. And while we can use technology to uh, advance the mission, to evangelize, to get the word out there, and maybe even to use during this time to minister to people who aren't able to gather because of health concerns. Rest assured, what it means for us to be the church when all the dust settles is that we gather. We're commanded to do so. Uh, then he says it's the church, the ecclesia of the living God. This, this phrase, living God, is grounded in Old Testament experience. It was the experience of the Israelites that God would be with them, that they were to be uh, distinguished as set apart and special in a world of peoples. And oftentimes that, uh, that presence of God was frustrated and God, God removed his presence because of their disobedience. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 15, it's the, uh, uh, the word of God says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This was to be the message of the Israelites in the Old Testament, the message that came uh, to fruition uh, through the wor completed work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And to turn to the living God is not only to be placed in the church that gathers, assembles uh, to worship and to accomplish his purposes, but it's to turn from lifeless religion. 
You see, the, the church of the living God stands in antithesis to every other form of worship that's dead, that's based on idols. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 says, In him you also are being built together uh, into a dwelling place for, the God, for God by the Spirit. So God is in the process of, of placing us in the church, building uh, the bride of Christ, building the household of God. Uh, he's building a, a dwelling place for him to reside. And many Christians who choose to live life apart from the church, or let's say professing Christians, who choose to live life apart from the church, uh, misunderstand what God intends to do with their life. God is building something. If Jeff shows up at a construction site and, um, to build a house and there's no framing lumber, like it just didn't show up at the job, Jeff can't build the house. And the same thing is true when we understand that God is building something of our shared lives together. When we don't show up, then the church is missing what God intended as he builds the church uh, to accomplish his purposes. The presence of God among his people is perhaps the central covenant promise uh, throughout all of Scripture that God will be with his people. Community is required uh, for the nearness of God. If you want to find God, scriptures would tell you that you're not going to find him in uh, places of influence. You won't find him among the captains of industry. You won't find him in the halls in Washington. If you want to find God, there's a simple place to look. It's the simple local gathering of believers. There is, this is where God delights to pour out his presence. Now, it's true that you and I can experience God. Uh, he lives within us. And we can experience him randomly out there all the time. But we are assured specially that when we gather together, two or three of us, that his presence is there in a way that it's not when we are alone. This is why we have labored over uh, eight or nine months to do everything we can to reopen the church safely. And then we've advocated that people come back. Why? Because we have a purpose to accomplish in this world. God is building something. And the message that we proclaim to the watching world around us is a message that men and women desperately need. There is nothing else in all the world that will change them. And the world needs to see the church for who she is as she professes Christ as Lord of all. Only then will the Spirit be using us to draw others to him. I love uh, Patrick Fairbairn's uh, Expression of this as the church is a palace, he underscores when he writes, the palace differs from other dwellings in the land and ranks proudly above them all, not it may be on account of its finer structure and more beautiful surroundings, but simply as being the seat and habitation of royalty. And such precisely is the distinguishing characteristic of the church of Christ. Wherever situated and whatever its external accompaniments, it is the palace of the great king, where he is ever graciously present, dispensing life and blessing to the members of his spiritual household. John Stott writes, In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at the table as he makes himself known to us through the breaking of the bread. In our fellowship, we love each other as he loved us. This is the testimony of the church 
and it is a symboled gathering. It must be seen. Third, the church is the proclaimer and protector of the truth. I want you to know, Paul writes, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, the word uh, pillar uh, is the word stylos in Greek. Uh, the word buttress, which means foundation, that which stabilizes the building is hedroma. Uh, and these two ideas together uh, have envisaged uh, an actual building and uh, kind of apply the, the principles of architecture and construction. But again, uh, God is focused on people. Uh, a foundation is what the, stabilizes the building. And the pillars are what uh, will hold the roof up and more importantly, thrust it into view. This was not lost on the people in Ephesus because the seventh wonder of the world existed there, the temple of the goddess Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 127 pillars. Each of the pillars was dedicated to it in honor of a human king. And those 127 pillars uh, framed a building that was 425 feet long by 225 feet wide. In essence, if you were in Ephesus, the one thing that you could see was the temple of the goddess Diana. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, uh, in, in talking to uh, the elders in Ephesus, he actually refers to uh, the, well, I'm sorry, I take that back. It's when he's preaching in Ephesus at the beginning that the artisans, Paul is calling them away from idols. So again, his, in the very beginning, his message was not popular. And, and, in, and the, 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 those who made their trade in making idols began to try to shout him down. And they were saying, great is the goddess uh, of Artemis. Great is the goddess of Diana. And Paul begins this part, he says, great is our confession. Uh, the church uh, is not uh, what the world recognizes as impressive. It's a Cinderella story. But the church is in the process of accomplishing God's purposes. And for that, Paul says, uh, she will appear uh, as a protector of truth and as a proclaimer. The question is, because uh, it, it raises an interesting question, is, is it the truth that's the foundation of the church or is the church the foundation of the truth? And the answer to that is, it's both. Uh, the truth, the church depends on the truth for its existence. We would not be the church apart from the truth, particularly in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the truth depends on the church for its defense and for its proclamation. The, the church has a, a twofold responsibility. One, to hold the truth firm. This is why Paul keeps uh, advocating that, uh, that we must do things according to God's prescription so that we don't lose our way. We have to hold it firm. We defend it in a world that thinks, it, um, thinks otherwise about it. And then second, uh, we have to hold the truth high. We have to proclaim it. We have to make it known. In this, every one of us are involved as sons and daughters of God. Uh, collective responsibility is built upon individual commitment. It is vital that all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, believe it, memorize it, meditate on it, study it, obey it, defend it, live it, proclaim it. This is the, uh, there's a, a collective aspect of the church's testimony uh, in the watching world. The truth must be lived. What Paul is advocating uh, in the church in Ephesus and, and other places where he writes is not just what is about what is scrutinizing what is taught, but about actually how it's lived out. 
In our, in our postmodern world where people don't believe in the idea of absolute truth anymore, they don't want to just hear you argue, make a, a cogent argument uh, for some idea of truth. They need to see it. We, we, our, our walk must match our talk. Uh, and as much as we are as a collection of people, uh, people whose testimony is, if you heard my story, you would hear how God has changed my life. And the more that our words are coupled with uh, the example, uh, the expressed example of our life, then we become the church that says, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. So our words have to be matched by our walk. We are a defender of the truth. We defend it with our lives, with our lips, um, but we're also a proclaimer. What is the truth? Well, Paul, again, anticipates the question if the church is to be a, a buttress and a pillar of the truth, then the question is going to be asked, what is the truth? And he answers that in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The mystery of the ages is the church's message. Paul's words uh, doubtless uh, have reference again to Acts 19 uh, when the, those who made idols for a living uh, proclaimed that, that, that the goddess Diana was great. Uh, the word confess uh, means a common confession. It means to say the same thing. And so as Paul has been challenging false teachers and, and drawing us back to the gospel, uh, he's saying that the confession of the church, the, one con the common confession of the church, is about Jesus Christ. This is the story that we have to tell. He calls it the mystery of godliness in verse 16. In verse 9, he referred to it as the mystery uh, of the faith. The, the word in the Greek is mysterion. It means that which was, was before hidden. It could not be seen. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, the mystery of God in Christ was hidden. No one could understand it or see it, but it has now been revealed. And this has reference, of course, to Jesus Christ and to him alone. He is the true reference uh, of purity and God-likeness. Uh, and, and then second, by extension, those who uh, become impacted by what the work of Christ become uh, are not only God's children, but embark upon the journey toward Christ-likeness. Paul draws us to the gospel. The message that saves a life is the message that makes a church. It's the message that restores a marriage. It's the message that informs parents who are raising children. Uh, it's the answer to every problem uh, that uh, uh, addresses humanity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the message of the church. And inasmuch as we lose our way, if we're looking for something else that pacifies our sensitivities, then we've, we've begun participating in something that is not the church. The church's message is the mystery of the ages in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul writes, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in this last verse, uh, Paul gives us six affirmations, uh, six stroves. It's actually a hymn uh, of the deity of Christ and his triumph. Uh, and there, uh, it forms three couplets, flesh and spirit, angels and nations, world and glory. There is an evolution in this verse of the mystery. Let me unpack it and then I'll close. First, he was manifested in the flesh. 
The word manifested is the, uh, the word revealed in the Greek. Uh, it doesn't mean to bring into existence or to create, but to make visible. This affirms Christ's preexistence. He was something before he showed himself in the flesh. At the incarnation, Jesus makes the invisible God visible uh, to you and I. Second, he was vindicated by the Spirit. This speaks not only of his life's work, but more importantly, it speaks of his accomplishment on the cross and his resurrection. The word means, uh, uh, vindicated means to justify, to declare righteous or to be shown righteous. In his life, we know this at, the, at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, where the heavens open up and the dove descends upon Christ as a spirit. And the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At his death, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 21, telling us that because of the merit of his life, in his death, God was pleased to place on him the iniquity of us all. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. And it also references his resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man. In his human nature, he was fully man. In his godly nature, he was fully God. This is a mystery to us. It's the mystery of the ages, but it is the focus of the church's message. And that is because the only thing that will help humanity is Jesus Christ. There are no answers to what ails man coming out of Washington. There are no solutions coming out of laboratories trying to address a particular pandemic or illness. What ails us is what has separated us from God, and the focus of how that becomes resolved is Jesus Christ. He was seen by the angels, Paul says. Uh, the word seen uh, is the word beheld. It has a, a number of meanings. It means to see, to visit, to observe, uh, to be attendant to. The angels all throughout the life of Christ saw him for who he was and marveled that the God of all creation would entrust himself to a teenage mother. All along Jesus' ministry, the angels were not only watching him, watching his progress, but they ministered to him. They saw him in a way that we could not, even though he had revealed God to us. And therefore, he must be proclaimed among the nations. Humanity cannot recognize, as the angels did, who Jesus is. And so the church is commanded to make him known. This is why our motto is to make much of Jesus from the mountains of Colorado to the remotest parts of the world. This is our job. This is your job. Regardless of your station in life, regardless of what it is, there are people around you who need to know who Jesus is. And so Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commands us as his church to go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're to be his disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, uh, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, right here in Gunnison, Colorado. We're to make him known. He must be preached among the nations so that those who will hear and repent and turn for their sins may come to know the Savior that we know. <clears throat> he is to be believed on in the world. History is replete with people who, even before the time of Christ, were looking forward in faith to what God would do and trusting him. Hebrews chapter 11 recounts them that they died without receiving their promise, but they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. The payoff for their faith only came in the person of Jesus Christ. Everyone in the Old Testament who was saved was not saved by keeping the law. 
They were saved by grace through faith, looking forward to the promise of God. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection of Christ, as the apostles began to preach, thousands upon thousands were turning their life to Christ. And history from that time forward in the past 2,000 years is replete. This room is filled with people who would say, I have come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He forgave my sins. He has washed me and made me new. I know I don't look like all of that, but I'm in the process of becoming like him. That would be the testimony of many of us. He is to be believed on in the world, and he has been like no other. There is no other religious leader who's had the staying power of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is none like him. He is the living God. And we are his people. Finally, he is to be taken up in glory. This has immediate reference to his ascension uh, into heaven after his resurrection. But it also includes his ultimate ascension to glory and power when he has come again at his second advent. This is the church's message. This is why we must be the church, the household of God, uh, the, 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 the people of God, the protector uh, and the proclaimer of Scripture, most importantly, of the gospel. God entrusted the honor of this message to people, people who Paul says were not wise by human standards or influential because of noble birth. We shouldn't preoccupy ourselves with trying to figure out how to be more appealing, more educated, more accepted by the watching world around us. Because God has chosen people like you and me to confound the wise. God has done something in us that when it's all said and done, people will say, wow, God must be worthy of credit if he could change a guy like me, if he could change a guy like Spence, if he could change you. Jesus gets the credit for who we become in him. This is not what anyone would expect the kingdom of God to look like. It is the mystery of the local church. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The church, she belongs to God. She is all of his making. And we are called to humble ourselves to play our part in being the people of God. Who would have thought, looking at her scrubbing the floors, that Cinderella would be the star of the ball? And that is what we are. We are the church. She doesn't appear that much to the watching world around us, but she is a radiant bride being prepared for the groom, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the centerpiece of God's purposes for humanity. Paul writes finally in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, that it was God's intent, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. How marvelous and wonderful that you should choose to invest such an incredibly important mission to people like us. And yet, uh, it is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. 
I pray, Father, that we would see ourselves as the household of, of God, as your family, that we are uh, the church, the body of Christ, uh, belonging to the living God, and that we are called uh, to be a protector and a proclaimer of the truth. God, I pray in, in our uh, community and throughout the world that you would uh, awaken men and women who would profess a relationship with you and yet have such a lacking ecclesiology, a lacking understanding about the importance of the local church. May we resist the, the uh, strategy of the enemy to downplay the influence of the local church, to make us think that we need to make ourselves look more attractive. We're not trying to be more attractive. We're trying to make Christ known. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beauty that you are attractive and that all that's required of us is that we would simply proclaim your name, that we would focus on you and make you known and the Spirit of God will do the rest. May we be uh, a family after your liking, a family that looks like what you envisioned us to be as your sons and daughters. We praise you for the privilege of calling you Father. Lord Jesus, we're humbled that we could be considered your little brothers and sisters. We praise you. We want to exalt you. We want to make you known, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> the most that any one of us has to offer may seem little in the hands of God, but when we uh, follow the Lord uh, to the place that he's leading us, when we become a part of the church of God. It is, it is a mystery of how God uses a bunch of different people uh, made one in Christ uh, to continue to persuade the watching world uh, of the splendor of our Savior. So as we go into the world, let us not forget we are privileged to call him Father. We, are, we should be humbled that he was willing to place us in the church that he owns, that he controls, and yet he has carved out a place for you and I to play a part. May we play it faithfully. God bless you. You're dismissed.